so you want to be a filmmaker. Yeah, I do too. And I've been wanting to do this for 20 years now. I've been wanting to direct my own feature film. And I know a lot of you that are listening to the show uh, feel the same way. And many of you may have actually signed up for the show or gone to the In Love With The Process website and clicked specifically on directors because you're trying to gain access to secrets. You're trying to figure out what is the best way in? What is the roadmap? What are the steps I that I follow? What is the correct way to do this? Um, and I'll tell you, man, I don't know. I don't have those answers. And I ask myself that stuff all the time as I, as I weave my way through my experiences in my life to get to the point where hopefully, knock on wood, finally the first one starts to happen. It's a long, long, long wait. It's a long haul to get to that point. And what you need to do and what we celebrate on this show is really love and respect the time that you get to prep for this sort of thing. You really need to understand how everybody on the crew does their job. You really need to understand how to reach that inner voice that you have, how to hone your skills, how to develop that pink filter that sits between your two ears, that creates your style, creates your voice for movies. Um, and this is a lifelong journey. It really is. I've been at this thing for about 20 years, almost 20 years now. Um, and so many, you know, up and coming or brand new filmmakers come out of nowhere and all of a sudden they're an overnight success. These people have been doing the same thing. I don't believe that there's overnight success. I think that that's all PR. That's marketing. That's part of the packaging deal that they do to sell movies. Uh, it, the, the truth of it is, is that everybody is in for the long haul when you want to be a director in this business. And there are so many paths to that goal. You know, you might be a writer. You might actually get into the business being a writer and eventually want to direct. You might work your way up through the crew. You might start in the assistant directing team. You might start as a PA and work yourself up through the crew and finally get to a position where you start directing. You may come at it from a visual standpoint. You might come at it as a cinematographer and make your way into directing. You might come at it as an actor and make your way into directing. And today's guest did that. Um, and what I want to do on all these shows that are the director shows is try to dig a little deeper. Let's get past all that bullshit PR one-liner crap that we hear every time we watch a behind the scenes clip or any time that you're watching like DVD extras and you just sort of see all the crew sitting on the chair and there's this normal rhythm to all those interviews. He's such a genius or she's so amazing and like they're a great person and they really know how to talk to actors and they really know how to talk to the crew and they have such a vision and you're just like, wait a minute, how do you talk to actors? How do you hone your vision? How do you get through this stuff? How fucking irritating is it being someone that is trying to get access to this thing, trying to figure those things out? And that's honestly, selfishly, that's one of the reasons why I do this show. 
It gives me the opportunity to sit down with other people that are going through what I'm going through, when I'm going through it, and have gone through it, and are more than willing to reach back and say, hey, look, if I had done this, if I had only decided to do this earlier, then I may have saved myself a year, two years. That's the shit I'm looking for. That's why we have these conversations. And uh, today's guest, I'm very happy to have him on the show. It's been a while since I've talked to him. It's been about two years since we've chatted. And the last time we talked, I was on his podcast. I was on the Filmmakers Podcast. And a lot of you listening to the show actually came over here because you heard that episode. So I would say that a big part of our UK fan base is because of that show. Um, And I'm more than happy. We've been talking on and off for the past couple of years. And he just reached out and he has a bunch of new projects. And he's like, I think it's time to come on the show. And I said, yeah, man, let's do it. Um, So I'm very happy to have uh, Giles Alderson on the show today. Um, Today, we're going to talk about his new projects. I mean, the guy's been busy as hell. Um, And it just so happens that all the projects that he's been working on for the past, what is it, like five years, are all releasing within three months. (laughs) How insane is that? Um, Now, if you are looking for some insider information on what it's like to direct a studio picture, he's got the experience. We talk about that on this episode. Talk about his film, The Dare, and talk about uh, how he got that off the ground, got that from script form, um, to actually being shot on a studio and how he convinced the specific studio to let him do that film. So there's a lot of really good information on that. Um, he then went on and produced a movie, uh, a serials, I'm sorry, a serial killer's guide to life. So he goes and produces for another director and he talks about a little bit about his experiences with that, which is great. Um, and we talk in depth about his new film that's coming out, the Arthur and Merlin film that drops on July 13th. So hopefully this episode comes out before then. Um, but we go into detail on what it's like to shoot uh, dudes dressed as knights on horses with swords in the rain. Like he did an entire production in the rain on that. Um, but more importantly, beyond the PR, we talk about what it's like to get your mind in the right place to make your first film. And then what it's like to get your mind in the right place to make your second film. So there's a lot of really solid advice on the show. We joke about it while we're doing it. We're two podcasters, so you're getting the best. If you like the Filmmakers Podcast and you like In Love With The Process, this is a super team up. (laughs) This is a super group episode. So you're going to get double punched with inspiration on this episode. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, it's supersized. As uh, I think maybe that's what we call this episode, Liam, as you're listening to this. It's the supersized inspiration episode. Um, but uh, before we get into it, I just want to thank all of you for supporting the show, for sticking with us, for following me on Instagram, at Mike Petchy on Instagram, for following the podcast on Instagram. That's in love with the process pod. That's in love with the process P-O-D on Instagram. Um, There you guys have been giving me suggestions for guests and we listen. I just had some pretty interesting suggestions last week for guests on the show. And 
we're approaching our hundredth episode. So we got to do something special for that. So if you guys have suggestions on who we should have on our hundredth episode, drop them to us, send them to me on at Mike Petchy on Instagram. And most importantly, drop everything right now. Stop the podcast, click the link below and go subscribe to us on YouTube. We are literally rebooting the entire podcast on YouTube. So we're remastering the old episodes and we're creating really amazing visual loops. Um, and basically what I'm doing is I'm going back into the raw footage for my films. So the movies that you may or may not have seen, the stuff that you like, I'm actually going back and looking at alternative takes from my films and creating visual loops that play while you listen to the episode. So you'll be able to look at some really pretty footage. You'll be able to hear in a brand new format, hear what the show sounds like, and we're really making the push to get onto YouTube. So we're gonna try to catch up, get all the episodes up there on YouTube, and then be dumping them on YouTube regularly. And hopefully when we get out of COVID, we'll be videotaping more episodes of the show. So we're working our way towards that transition. Um, and those of you who are like, but Mike, I like listening on my Apple fucking podcasting. We're not going anywhere there either, guys. You can subscribe to them both, right? And I suggest you do because you're going to get more off the YouTube than you will off the audio podcast, but we're not going anywhere. The audio podcast will always be there. They'll be on Spotify because I, I get it. I don't have a YouTube subscription either. And the big pain in the ass about listening to YouTube when you're in the car is that unless you have a subscription, you can't go away from that window, right? So like if you're trying to use your fucking navigation and play YouTube at the same time, it's a pain in the ass. I totally understand. We would never take away the audio portion of the show. So we will always be there, but do me a favor and go subscribe to us on YouTube. It's important. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you guys. That's why we come up with episodes like today's episode. And you're going to get a lot from this episode. If you're feeling depressed, if COVID's got you down, this is the show for you, man. It's going to kick you right in the fucking dick. You're going to need it. It's going to kick you right in the ass and you're going to get up and start doing stuff. So strap yourselves in, get ready uh, for the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. So go find yourself those noise canceling headphones. Grab a piece of paper and a pencil or grab your iPad or however it is that you guys take notes these days and get ready to write some shit down because we get into it on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Giles, thanks for being on the show, my man. How are you? I am good. It's a pleasure, Mike. Honestly, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been, last time we talked was when I was on your podcast, the Filmmakers Podcast, and I think that was like 2018 or something like wow. that. Wow. Yeah, I looked it up and it was episode 79, but yeah, that's probably 2018. That's crazy. <laughs> it doesn't feel that long ago, though. It doesn't Dude, feel that long ago, or does it's it? That's because that's we sleep in DeLoreans, man. We're just <laughs> so time traveling. That's basically so what true. Happens. We're just constantly making films and we're up in the world and we don't notice. <laughs> time doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Uh, no, it seems, yeah, you're right. It was a while ago. And we nearly hooked up when I was in LA. I don't mean hooked up as in the uh, American phrase of that, the UK phrase, which means meet up. 
I said that by mistake to a friend. I said, oh, can you hook me up with this person? They went, what? I was like, what do you mean? And then I realized, I went, okay, don't use that anymore. So, yes. Uh, hey, man, I'm disappointed. I thought it was the other thing. So. <laughs> Mate, there's still time. Next time I'm in LA, we'll do a hookup. I promise. Yeah, man. Well, a um, beer, yeah. Round of beer, yeah. So where are you, where, where are you right now? I'm in London. Um, okay. I literally, when COVID happened, I was in LA and that's mm-hmm. when it was like, quick, get back on a flight. So mm-hmm. I think we had the release of The Dare as, had just happened. So I was doing all the press and doing the rounds with the film. And then it was like, get back on a flight. You've got to go back now. Yeah. And I've been back in London since. I'm well, in my room. You know, and busy, apparently, with all the stuff that's been happening. You've had like a bunch of releases from the Dare mm-hmm. uh, onto the uh, Serial Killers Guide movie and then uh, the new one, the Arthur and Merlin movie. You've been yeah. a busy, busy it, dude, dude. It's been, uh, it's been one of those things, right? You know what this is like. You spend so long trying to make movies, you know, mm-hmm. constantly trying to make stuff, trying to uh, cope and survive. And eventually they'll come out. And then they all pretty much came out within three months of each other. And you're like, yeah. And in fact, the Serial Killer's Guide to Life and the Dare were competing in the American charts, which one topped each other every day. It was like, which one's up and this one's down, this one's up. It's kind of weird and crazy, but who cares? You know, as long as you're getting your movies out and that's what matters. Um, But yeah, the Dare took three years to get out. And in fact, when it gets released in the UK in October, it'll be four years from when I first stepped on set to make it. Wow. It just took that long. It wow. took that long, yeah. Whereas King Arthur, well, Arthur and Merlin Knights of Camelot, to give it its full title, which I didn't choose, but still, it's you know, it's what it is. Uh, is it took six months from first step, stepping on set to being released in on July the thirteenth? Isn't that mental? It's crazy, dude. So, what's the what's the deal with the dare? Why did that take so long? And this was this was a studio flick, right? Technically, yeah. was this a studio it's, flick? It's yeah. a studio movie for my debut movie. Yeah, I just got better. Um, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, because it was a studio movie, uh, they could just take their time. So I needed to do some pickups. I had to get uh, some bits and pieces. They wanted a couple of little things changed, but we couldn't get back on set. We couldn't. They needed to build it. They had Rambo 5 shooting. They had London Has Fallen shooting and Hellboy shooting. And they were just like, yeah, yeah when these are finished, oh, we just got another one in. When these are finished. And then when they did have a space, my actors were busy doing other stuff or the hair was the wrong length and it just dragged and dragged and dragged. So it was a year later I did my first set of pickups and then we decided to redo the beginning of the movie. So it was another six months. And obviously they've already, we've already finished the movie. The movie had finished, it was ready to go. And then it was like jump back in and re-edit and redo it and remaster and all that stuff. And it was devastating. And yeah, it just, you know what it's like things just take a long time studio out quick your film is not important it's not the most important thing in the world you know low budget indie flick it's like yeah all right well we'll do it when we're ready you just sit tight son (laughs) that's the story of our lives isn't it (laughs) hurry up and wait you can do it you can do it go on get it down quick oh no you're gonna have to wait you're gonna have to wait yeah yeah and then eventually when we got picked up um from the horror collective which was amazing i was i was at the popcorn frights film festival for its big sort of premiere and Mm -hmm. the horror collective were there and they saw it and said hey we really like the movie so i set that up with millennium who were my um big studio movie behind it said can i set you up with these guys and went sure next thing i know a deal's happened and yeah and then it took another 
whatever it was, five months before they go, right, this is the date it's getting released. <laughs> but this is it, I think, because everything's in a line when it's a studio movie. Everything's on a conveyor belt. And if you don't, yeah. if you need to do pickups or it's not a Nicolas Cage film where it has to be out at a certain time, they're going, well, we'll put you behind that Nicolas Cage film and the next Nicolas Cage film. Do you see what I mean? So it's yeah. just, that's, that's what happens in the studio. You get lost in that system and I'm, I'm just grateful it eventually came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 let's, let's go back a little bit here and let's, let's catch the fans of the show up. Although I will say that I have a bunch of fans listening to our show that listen to your show. So oh, there's a lot of people. Listening. I love them all. I love our yeah. fans. Aren't they yeah, amazing? Dude. Yeah. yeah. Dude. So and your show's, a lot of people. Your show's incredible as well. I listen all the time. I love it. What you do, your voice, everything is just wonderful. And you know, I think, I think indie filmmakers should, they should just love it and say, yeah, they get something like this for now for free basically it's like yeah, yeah. embrace it <laughs> send mike messages constantly and say he's the best and then while, oh, sure. while you're at it send them to me as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so that's gonna be this whole it's gonna be an hour hour long episode of us just jerking each, jerking other, each off. other off you're yeah, amazing no you yeah. are <laughs> um <clears throat> so for those of you who don't know you should go listen to his podcast as well the filmmakers podcast great show um and uh, i was very fortunate to be on it with you um and uh i i think that's kind of how we met initially was just being on the show and talking about stuff and then uh i was just i i'm always keeping up with you man and, and you're a busy motherfucker you're you're constantly working thank you man. Um, that should go on my uh, gravestone busy motherfucker <laughs> yeah <laughs> dead dead from work yeah um, dead from work yeah, that's how I want to go too, man. So, totally, totally. Um, so uh, you uh, put together. So, did you write and uh, you did you write and direct the dare? Was that yes. you that scripted it? Okay, great. Yes. Well, I was. It was one of those things where you're, as you know, to try and make a feature film is really difficult. And I'd spent, I think, eight years solidly trying to get a feature made. And mm -hmm. I'd, I'd had some success during that. And I mean successes in, uh, we were in the door at Fox. We had Jason Statham attached to one. But they all fell down. So the success from it actually is nothing because nothing came of them. Oh. Um, so during that time, I was like, how can I make a feature? Because I'm the problem. Event, you know, you get further down the line and you know that Jason Statham was just going to kick me out. You know, it would have yeah. been great, great. You've signed Jason Statham. And by the way, Jason's going to bring in this director. So you're associate producer now. <laughs> it's like, oh, cheers. And by the way, you yeah. don't get credited. So we, I, I always was, I, I urge any filmmaker to do the same. You've got to find projects that you own, that are your baby and you believe in because people do let you down and you do need to have contracts with everyone, even if it's a one-pager. And I made the mistake of not having those and it not being my script. And I'd always written. I'd had plays on at the Royal Court in London and Soho Theatre, you know, big stuff. But for some reason, I didn't think I could write a script. So it was always, oh, someone else is better than me. They're script writers. But actually, I could do it. I mean, I'm not the best. You know, there's people who are better than me, sure. But I can string some sentences together, you know. And sure. So with The Dare, I brought on Johnny Grant, who'd written a, a brilliant drama called The Nobodies that we're trying to get made. One of those trying to get made, but it was hard because it was a drama. Mm -hmm. And I just came up with this idea for The Dare that was in a couple of notebooks, um, two separate stories. And I went, why don't I just put them together? And that was it. Within, you know, literally about uh, a day after me putting them together, I had the idea fully fledged. And then I, I eventually contacted Johnny after going around the houses with some other producers and messing around. I said, Johnny, write this with me. And within a month, we had a really, really solid draft. 
Um, mm. And again, it, one of, because I've been around for so long and I was an actor for, you know, 10, 15 years before that, I'd met various producers along the way. So and being a reasonably nice guy, um, I mm-hmm. could send it to them and go, what do you think? And the interest was huge. Um, and it just took off. It was one of those that people were going, yes, we'd like to make this. And it was a shock and it was amazing. I still didn't believe it. Um, and my wonderful friend Julian Kostov, who ended up producing The Dare, took it to New Boyana Studios in Bulgaria, who are owned by Millennium. And mm. they got it read by their script team, got amazing you know, reviews and saying, yes, we could shoot this here, but we're not looking to make movies right now, you know, in-house. And it was devastating but we were like okay well we'll make it for 100 grand in the uk we'll just let's find the money and we did and we found this producer who was a little bit crazy <laughs> but <laughs> you were like you get to make your movie uh and i think we were we were really close to signing papers and doing it and we went one less chance let's go back to millennium and new Boyana and say we've got a deal this is your last chance so that happened that call happened julian called up yarev at the studio and said this is what's happening if you want this movie, The Dare, you need to act on it now. And Yarev mm-hmm. went, okay, if Giles can fly out to Bulgaria tomorrow, I will see him. And <laughs> if he pitches me correctly, we'll think about it. I booked that first plane. <laughs> I was like dropping everything. I am flying to Bulgaria tomorrow. And I sat in, in a hotel um, and I pitched him The Dare. And he looked at me and kind of went, okay, okay. I need to pass this by a few other people. You can be clearly mm-hmm. passionate and all that. Come and have a look at the studio and tell me if you think you can film your movie there. <laughs> now, <laughs> anyone who says to anyone, go look around my big movie studio with all my New York set, my London set and all the, you know, studio spaces. <laughs> can you make a movie there? Of course you're going to say yes. Yes. I walked yeah, yeah. I walk, I walk around this place and it was like going to Disneyland, literally walking around going, oh my God, is this real? Could this actually happen? Um, wow. And I said, he, he, he cornered me afterwards and went, so? And I went... Yeah, I think I can make it work. <laughs> uh, and he said, well, I'm coming to London in three months. So I'm going to bring my producer. If you still haven't made it in the UK by then, then let's talk again. So obviously I'm holding out now. I'm holding out, I'm holding out. And he comes to London and I, I pitch it again. But we ended up just chatting, you know, about whatever else. And he got yeah. to know me. And I, I think the real reason he invested in the movie and they did, obviously they liked the project, was because they liked me. And they liked what I stood for and I wanted to do and, and make a movie like this. And I think it took another six months after that. But that was me in Bulgaria for three of those months prepping the movie and doing storyboards and how and yeah. why I could make this movie in a studio and all that stuff. And eventually they greenlit the movie uh, and That's got to make it. Crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a crazy story. In. And uh, <laughs> prior to that, now when you made that statement, which is interesting where you're like, I got in the way of these movies. That was just mm. because you hadn't directed a feature yet, correct? Yeah. Is that what the deal was? Ex- yeah, yeah. Exactly that. And there was there was always that sense whenever I was in the stu- in the room with Fox Searchlight or I was in other big studios that we, uh, you know, execs studios that we're in, that they're all going, yeah, yeah, we really like this project. It was a, it was a sci-fi at the time but you are the problem. You haven't made a movie, right? And it didn't matter how many shorts I'd made, how many awards they'd won. They treated me like, you know, you'd never picked up a camera. You'd never been on set. Um, and it was a real problem. And for me, the way round that now to any filmmakers listening is go make a film. Go make something on your iPhone because these people don't necessarily watch your movie. They don't necessarily care 
how well it did, what they care about is that you have the ability to make a movie and see it through. Because God forbid, on their set, on the 20 million type movie, and you just drop the ball and you don't do it, uh, they're in real deep, you know. Uh, sure, sure. So sure. they've got to know. What was, uh, if I can ask, what was the budget for that movie that you were trying to get made? What range it, was it? Well, this is, the, I'm so glad you asked. It does change. So we, we went through so many budgets. There's times when we were, we started off, let's just make this for, you know, 500 grand. Let's just make this for two mil. And the budget kept mm -hmm. going up and up and up. And suddenly they were talking 15, 20 mil. And we're yeah. looking going, oh, God, God. Yeah. Jason Statham's attached. Right, it's 30. Fox are attached. Oh, it's this. And you're just going, oh, inside you're dancing, thinking, oh, my God, I could be making this kind of a movie, but really absolutely cacking yourself because you've no idea how to make a movie. Certainly not a Jason Statham action sci-fi movie. Sure. No chance. I mean, I'm so, you know, looking back now, I'm really glad it didn't happen. But at the time, it's devastated. I mean, literally crying into your pillow when it all fell down. It was uh, really horrible. And that wasn't dude. the only movie it happened to. It happened on about six or seven movies. The same thing, just kept banging my head against a brick wall. And you've uh, got to think of a way to how are you going to make a movie? It's brutal. I, yeah. This is something that my guys have told me too, where it's like, look, if you're, if you're even thinking about going over $5 million as a first-time filmmaker, you're, yeah. you're out of your mind. It's yeah. just not going to happen. It's, it's really it, not. They're just going to push you out. Don't even, don't even attempt it. If your script has yeah. got huge sci-fi effects, it's got this, that, and the other, unless you can shoot that in your bedroom, don't do it. Rewrite something else now and keep it in your drawer as a spec script to show agents, to show future uh, exec producers, but not for your first movie. Yeah, no. yeah. There's no, no way, something. man. No. There's no way. No. Uh, because I, I'm in the same process right now. Our, and I'll talk offline with it because I, I really can't talk about a bunch of this stuff. But mm. um, one of ours is about, hopefully about to go, but ours is like, you know, it's under five. So it has to be. And it, yeah. that was basically what I was handed early on from my agents and management. They said the same exact thing. Like, you have to be doing it at this price point. And mm -hmm. it, if, it's, if it's bigger than that, they'll never let you direct it. Totally. So something to think about at home those of you that are trying to make your first feature, do yourself a favor. Do yourself, a, do yourself a favor, and this is just my opinion, and that you may back it up, but do yourself a favor, write yourself something in horror, uh, don't write a drama, and keep, your, keep yourself under $2 million. If you don't you know want to have eight years of hurt and pain, yeah. <laughs> I totally agree with Mike. Uh, don't do it. Just don't write something like horror. It's perfect. The, the dare is a horror. I knew it could get made without stars. You didn't need to wait around for yep. stars. Whereas an, yep. an action sci-fi, you're going to need a star, especially if you're going anywhere above half a mil. Anywhere yep. above, really. A mil, all right. And, and, and do you know what? America is different to the UK. I do believe that in terms of we do make films here. You know, Serial Killer's Guide to Life was made for 60 grand. Mm -hmm. And it's on Sky Movies now. It's on Showtime in the USA. It's amazing. It's done really well. But that's kind of anomaly. These kind of movies don't, it doesn't normally work like that. Um, whereas in America, it's, you know, the amount of producers I'm talking to now, they're all going, you made it for how much? You made The Dead for that. You made King Arthur for that. And you can't, yeah. Um, I don't know why. There just seems to be this different thing where, where I know movies do get made for a lot less in the US, but it, studio wise, you know, Go go out, filmmakers out there. Go out and try and make a movie for well under a million. If you can make it yes. for sixty grand, go make it, because yeah. suddenly people respect you. You've made a movie. Cool. Let's talk about your next one. 
Yeah, yeah, because it's 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 the worst. Because I'm in that boat myself, and mm. it's like you know, 20 years of like uh, you know directing sets with like you know 50 person crew for commercials or doing music videos or doing any of that stuff, and none of that matters. No, when you get matter. in that room, they just sort of look at you and they go, "Yeah." yeah. <laughs> I, like, I remember my exec producer talking to me like it was incredible. Hey, he knew I'd won awards for my shorts. He knew that I'd made long form films and brand media and ads and all that stuff. But he literally said to me, I'm going to tell you what a first AD is. And on set, you're going to have to do this. And you're going to have to be the one to say action. And I was like, oh my God. And you're trusting me with this movie? What the? But that's, it, it's, you know, that's not to put him down. He's a brilliant guy. He's amazing. But the fact is that he was like, your shorts don't mean anything to me. This is yeah. different. This is yeah. very different. Um, so my, my advice is find an amazing project and write it yourself. Even if it's not very good, don't worry about it. Bring someone else in to polish it. There's plenty of brilliant writers out there who will come and work on your project and get a co-writer credit with you. And then find the right people to make it with. Don't just get your best friends because he held a camera once. Do you know what? There's some great DPs out there. There's some brilliant crew members you can find and get them on your side by... Um, uh, have been passionate about your project and know what you want as a director. There's nothing worse than when, they, I, as an actor being on set, when directors didn't know what they wanted. You yeah, have to totally. know 100% your vision, your style, how you want the camera to move. And it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to change it. But yep. have a have an opinion, please. Um, and I learned that from acting. So yeah, I'd never have been a director if I, I wasn't an actor, that's for sure. That's fascinating. So you come at this from an actress perspective. Mm. Um, so, okay, interesting. So as an actor, what are some of the worst traits that you've seen in directors? Uh, not being able to talk to an actor, being scared of an actor. So, uh, or letting someone run away with a performance because at the time they think it's funny or good and not understanding an actor's arc. I suggest that any actor, any director, producer, filmmaker, editor, camera person to go do an acting course. Literally mm. go in a class for pay 30 quid in one of these you know, classes and go sit in a room and actually stand up on, hit your mark and say your lines. Because as soon as you've done that, you'll understand how difficult it is. And the same the other way around. Any actor, go be a director for a day. Go direct your mate on an iPhone and you'll go, oh... Because I tell you what, director made me a much better actor. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because it for does, hundred sure, percent does. So yeah, but the acting side of it, I, I that's why I love working with actors because I get their journey, I get how difficult it is, I get what they're doing, and I can tease more of a performance. I feel so because I can talk to them. I understand what they're going through, and I've talked to them beforehand, and I've got the arc right. And Richard Short on Arthur and Merlin, I'd say one word to him because we talked so much beforehand. I'd literally go out and whisper, I'd say this or don't forget that or that word. Think about that word. That is death or that means that. And then he, he went, got you now. And he'd tap into that. And it's just little things, but it's knowing what performance you want. For yeah. me, I look, at, um, I look for lying. I look for people not telling the truth when I'm watching the monitor or I'm working with them. If I can tell straight away if someone's sort of lying on camera, the camera doesn't lie and it picks it up. So I'm literally watching out for that because I, I know I can cut around a performance. I know that if that bit was amazing and the second take was amazing, but the middle bit wasn't. So I'll go for the third bit and now all I think about is that, that middle bit. And yeah. I'll, as long as I've got that, the rest doesn't matter because now I know I can edit because I'm editing as I go, as I'm watching and... Yeah, and that's just took years of learning and getting better and all those mistakes and heartache 
I wouldn't have been as as a good a director as I am, if I am a good one or not, um, is through that, through learning and making mistakes. Fascinating. So <clears throat> I like this. I like this is a really good uh, rabbit hole that we're jumping in here. So when you talk about lying, it's just that you don't buy that the actor is in the moment. You don't buy that the actor believes what they're saying, and mm-hmm. they're just they're just essentially reading the lines and and stepping on their marks, and they're, they're, they're feeling it. Correct. Yes, so many actors can because you can get lost in a performance. You can get uh, on set. There's a lot of things going on, and especially if you're swinging a sword or you've got to do something with a prop or you've got a you know blood spurting out of your arm. It's really difficult to then hit a performance each time that matches the wide or matches this. So I have to be making sure I'm on top of that. Um, So coming from the acting background, whether I was any good or not is irrelevant. What I can see is someone who's not telling the truth. And it'll be something simple. And I know they can do it. And I know but they'll just not be focusing on that. Or I'll tell them a certain note and they'll go down a certain line. And I'll be like, ah, okay, that note was wrong. What, I'm, what I really need them to do is this. And there's so many words and phrases you can use, and I've got my, my notebook's full of them. And it's verbs and adverbs and, um, and doing words, you know, uh, so that they can then use that rather than, oh, do it faster, do it better. It's uh, do it with passion, do it with what's, you know, what happened 20 years ago to your mum. Think about that throughout that sentence when they say that to you little things like that that might necessarily be useless but it gets to the point of what i want them to deliver and Mm. as long as that bit's truthful well the audience at home believe it because they don't know what they're thinking they know what they're supposed to be thinking so as long as you've got that then the story makes sense so if you yeah. suppose someone's like adverts are a perfect example of this. You've worked, you've done so many adverts. So if many. Act, yeah, yeah. If an actor is maybe not getting what you need necessarily, you you can take a blink or a, a look, and you can turn that into something totally different in an advert. Well, it's the same totally. in a film. There's no different difference at all. You can you can manipulate a performance out of an edit a hundred percent, and I do it over and over again, but. Uh, I think actors are, it's very difficult being an actor and it's really hard. There's a lot of pressure and the more I can be on their side and put my arm around them metaphorically, or I can, they need a bit more, you know, a bit more of a, come on now, you're not hitting that. It's, it's, each actor's different and you have to almost get it, guess it from rehearsals, what they need, what they want. And that's just pushing those buttons. And then they trust you and they trust the camera and the team and then you can start playing and get that performance you really, really want. That's fascinating. And I appreciate you going into that. No problem. S- selfishly, I appreciate that because I feel like more often than not, we hear these terms whenever you're seeing like a behind the scenes video or whatever the fuck it is. And like yeah. we're essentially trying to decipher them. Like, you know, I speak the actor's language. Mm. And it's like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know it's what true. I mean? It's secrets. We don't want to give away. People don't. This is what. This is why me and you love to do the podcast because we're okay to give away our secrets because sure. it's share and share. You know, so and so might be a better director than me. There might be a better editor than me. There might be this. And that. It doesn't matter. It's about passion and storytelling and and the ability to get across something that you really believe in and that's a story and people can sit at home and watch. So the secrets of of directing actors is just about 
working with them and trying to get out what they want. What do they want from this scene? And often actors might be not necessarily playing up but or, or not getting the scene. It might be because of their costume. It might be because mm. they've just had lunch and they feel a bit fat in it and it's a wide shot. All right, do you know what? I'm going to come in close because they've just had the lunch. And you can only know that by doing and actually understanding what's going through their minds it's it might not be nothing to do with that it might be the costume's too tight or someone's just had a go at them just beforehand or they've lost something or someone from home's just phoned them up and something bad's happened all this is going off literally before they step on set and you've yeah, been prepping totally. for ages because you as a director as you as a producer or dop on set and not thinking about anything else but the shot and the lighting and how i'm going to move the camera around this space the actor's not they're in the green room having a laugh with their mates. They're on the phone with their boyfriend having an argument. And they've got to step onto set right there and deliver a performance. So what you've got to do is get that balance right. So you've got to, as soon as they come on set, right, rehearse. How am I going to do this? Get them in the zone. Say the right words. Get the right phrases so that they're ready to go when that camera turns over. Because you haven't got much time. So I hope you guys are enjoying the show so far. Um, lots of stuff here. Lots of notes that I've been taking for myself um, on this one. Uh, and there's a lot of really good stuff on the way. But in the meantime, please stick around for our reads. Because we're going to do some ad reads for the men and women responsible for making the show happen. Couldn't do anything without sponsors on the show. So I love these guys. And when I go through the process of finding sponsors... These are people that I believe in. These are companies that I believe in. These are companies that I support. These are individuals that I trust. So it's very important to me that I'm not just randomly grabbing folks. If I find a company that I think that you're going to find some sort of interest in, it's going to be useful to you, stuff that I use. That's how I find the sponsors of the show. Now, if you're like, fuck, I got to fast forward to the advertisements. Mm, that's your prerogative, man. But you're probably going to miss out on some interesting stuff. I promise you that I'll probably say a thing or two in here that you wish you didn't miss. So strap yourselves in. <laughs> First up, the good boys over at Puget Systems. If you're a filmmaker, you're a photographer, if you're an editor, video editor, and you're looking for a brand new system, I highly suggest you look at PCs, right? There was a point in time where you said PC and everybody's like, what are you, an idiot? No, PCs are fantastic once again. You could build a high-speed PC custom-built specifically for your needs. And you have access with a PC to unlimited combinations of hardware specs, right? That's the best part about building a PC is that, especially with Puget, because Puget doesn't manufacture any hardware. They don't manufacture this shit. They just build computers. So these guys are on the hunt for the newest, the greatest, the best, the most affordable pieces for your project and they run through benchmark tests they do all they do it all if there's a new video graphics card that comes out in the marketplace they get their hands on it and they put it through the paces with every program that they possibly can and they basically you know unveil the myths about it oh this brand new graphics card is going to be amazing sure if you're using this program and this program but guess what you might want to be two generations prior if you're using this program and this program Stuff that you would never know. And being someone that used to build my own PCs years ago, you would just Google search, right? What's the hottest thing on the market? Let me try to find who built a really great PC. And I always had a hard time with that. I couldn't find a place 
where they were giving me true specs on what I wanted to build currently. Then I found Puget Systems. At Puget Systems, you can choose from a selection of their PC units based upon the software you use. You can actually go in there and say, hey, look, I use this software. What is, the, what is a good baseline package? They'll suggest that package. That package can be customized. And here's what's important. Puget is a company. It's a family-owned run company. It's not some giant fucking um, corporation that wants to uh, register itself as an individual. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So like if you want to get in touch with these guys and you want to write to these guys and say, guys, this is I have a special need here. I have a special want. Uh, here's my budget and here's what I need. They love to hear from you. They love it. They love to talk to us. That's how I met them as I wrote to them directly. So if you're looking to build a brand new PC and you want it to be faster than anything else in the market and you want it to be affordable, I would go to PugetSystems.com and check them out. And these guys do great things for the community. I know on their website, they're doing donations based upon our current atmosphere that we're dealing with right now. So if you're looking for a place that'll match your donations, definitely go check out PugetSystems.com. It is all up there on their website. I love the guys. They're fantastic. Check it out. Also, supporting the show, as always, is our good buddies over at Quasar Science. Uh, one of the best advancements in technology over the past few years in the film business has been LED lighting. Uh, and on a prior episode, I don't know, we release these episodes so out of order. On one of the episodes, whether you've heard it yet or not, I gave a little tip on how I used Quasar's um, bicolor tubes to light the knives for the Dale Strong piece that I did. Um, I've used um, LED tubes to light so many different elements. And recently we used a bunch of LED tubes to light the Zarface video as well. The thing that's great about Quasar tubes and the thing that's great about LED technology is that if you don't have access to power, right? So you don't have the ability to have a generator, you don't have the ability uh, to have more than a 15 amp circuit, you can do amazing things with LED lights on an, just a standard circuit in a space. Um, and when we were doing Zarface, we were shooting that in hotel rooms, essentially. So we would get into a hotel room, set up our little set with these things. We didn't have a lot of room to actually put lights because we physically didn't have room for the C-stand plus the head plus the distance and the throw. And so we were using very small LED units. Uh, some of them were Quasar, some of them were from other companies. Uh, a lot of you are asking, Mike, what kind of lights do you have in your kit? I have bicolor tubes from Quasar and I have rainbow LED uh, units from Quasar as well. So if you're looking for new lights, you're looking for a quality kit, you wanna to put together something that is universal, that you can use on a bunch of different gigs, uh, like I said, I use it on a commercial for knives. In the same month, I used it on, you know, Tom Segura's face in uh, the Zarface video. So check them out. Go to quasarscience.com. Also, if you want to support the show, please go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There you will find that I've curated all of the episodes based upon subject material. So if you're like, Mike, Jesus, it's like 90-something. You're pushing almost 100 episodes. And I just came over from the Filmmakers Podcast on this one. Where the fuck do I go? How do I find the episodes that I want? Do I start at episode one? 
Well, if you are going to start at episode one, then I suggest you go to our YouTube channel. So go to the In Love With The Process YouTube channel, and there you'll listen to remastered versions of episode one. And what does remastered mean? Well, if you like the audio quality that's coming out of my voice right now, and you want that to be consistent, then go listen to them on YouTube because we've remastered them to sound like they happened at the same time. There isn't like a two year period between. Um, Plus you also get that really cool video loop that happens there. Um, But also, if you're like, look, I'm just interested in director episodes, I've curated all the director episodes in one place. I've also curated all the cinematographer episodes. You can choose by subject material. So go to inlovewiththeprocess.com and there, if you love this show and you want to donate and you want to give us some loot, um, there's a bunch of different options in the sponsors tab. So if you click the sponsors tab, there's a bunch of different ways to help support the show. You could reach in your own pocket and give us a donation. That's very nice of you, especially during COVID. But if those of you who don't have the loot are worried about your unemployment, which I totally understand, uh, sign up for a free trial at Audible for us. Now, you have to have not done this already, and I know a lot of you guys listen to other podcasts and they have that as well. If you've already done this, don't do it again. doesn't make a difference. But if you're new to Audible, sign up using the Audible free trial link below for us. I think it's audibletrial.com backslash and level the process, I think is what it is. Um, Click on that link, sign up for a 30-day free trial. What you get 30 days for free, you get a free audio book. You get access to all their audio material. Uh, you're gonna get hooked. Um, and after 30 days, hold on, <laughs> shit. <laughs> oh, that was a big one. After 30 days, after 30 days, if you don't like it, if you can't afford it, then cancel. I get it, we still get paid, so it doesn't matter. Um, so we get paid for everybody that signs up for the trial. Go through the process of doing that, and it's an easy way to get us some money. I know you're probably going to stick around with Audible because they have a bunch of great content. And I, when I'm busy, I like to listen to my books instead of read my books. It's a great place for that. So, like I said, click the link below or go to inlovewiththeprocess.com and click on our sponsors link. Either way, it'll still work. Support the show without costing you a dime. All right, let's get back to the episode. This is all really interesting stuff because I've heard, you know, we've I've heard the interviews with like Ridley Scott and I've heard the interviews with all these directors that have been amazing and I consider myself a visualist first, so I come oh, from God, the other side. Visual. Yeah, your stuff's so beautifully visual. It's amazing. Thank you, thank you. But I come from the other side, so I yeah. don't come from an acting background. I come from the tech background and the visual background. And so for me, my story, and I'm not saying that I have any sort of comparison other than this little thing with Ridley Scott is that we both sort of come from that visualist sort of background. And I remember reading articles, and I was trying to decipher them for years, on him going, like, I just couldn't figure out how to communicate with actors. And I had a problem dealing with the communication with actors. And you can see in his in his career, when he started to really sort of kick in, you could see when he started to get the ability to better communicate with actors. And his movies just became a bit more layered and a bit more textured. I mean, his stuff was always gorgeous mm-hmm. since The Duelist, for, for fuck's sake. Yeah. But but then you start to like kick into like post-Gladiator, like through after Gladiator, mm-hmm. and you start to see how the performances in his film start to blow out a little bit mm-hmm. and how that stuff starts to be really interesting. And um, 
I, you know, being somebody that hopefully, fingers crossed, knock on whatever the fuck, uh, I'm going to be doing a, my first feature soon. Mm-hmm. I'm consistently looking for cheat sheets because <laughs> because you don't want to fail on, you know, the first. And yep. so you go through the process of like, how is this happening and what's going on? Um, and this has been sort of like, everybody talks about what cameras you use. Everybody, you can Google search any of this shit. But mm. when it comes down to dealing with actors, and I think the reason why it's so hard to grasp is that there isn't a formula. And it's like the art of training yourself, at least for my limited experience at this point, it's the art of training yourself to be empathetic and to understand and actually get out of your own fucking head mm-hmm. as a creative. Because in the beginning, you're just like, I'm making a fucking movie. Holy shit. And I'm so like, I need to make sure that the crew knows what they're doing. And I need to keep all this stuff going on. And I have to be the leader and I have to be the fucking genius. And mm-hmm. I have to do all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It, and it just took years of, of consistent beat down for me, whether I was doing music videos or commercials or whatever it was, where I just sort of hit a point where I go, I'm not important. I mean, I've been important to get us to this point, uh-huh. but now I'm not important. What's important are all the elements that are in front of the camera. That's what's important from like the beginning of our shoot day to the end of the fucking shoot day. And sure, I'll be important afterwards and I'll be important in the edit room and all that kind of stuff. But let me check my fucking ego here (laughs) and really get to the point where it's like, this is all for nothing if I can't figure out how to communicate with human beings. And the thing that's so fascinating about our industry is that a lot of people that want to get into this industry and want to be directors and want to be creatives and cinematographers and all that kind of stuff, a lot of them are introverts. And a lot of them are people that don't know how to communicate with people and lock themselves away and they want to be like the artist and they want to have that ego. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think that's, for me at least, that's what I'm attempting to do not to fail. Is like to get to that point where you're not just a fucking dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and there's a fine line, and there is, and this is this is a really interesting thing, and I'm so glad we're talking about this because you're right. A lot of directors and producers, more directors, are introverts. They are the Quentin Tarantino geeks. They are the the video yeah. shop geeks. They are the people who love film and they love talking about geeky stuff. But actors aren't. Actors are kind of, even though they're very vulnerable and they've got issues, they're not. They're very open, or they certainly pretend to be that they're these big characters and I can do this and I can do that. But actually, when it comes down to it, they're absolutely cacking themselves more than you are because Mm. they just need a guidance. And do you know what? It could be the worst performance in the world, but if you tell them, and you've already built up that respect, that it was good, because you need to move on, you've got no time, or you got it in the first take and whatever, great. They're going to go happy into the next scene. So Mm. sometimes you have to do that, and you have to know when that time is right to just go, that was great, we've got that, we're moving on. Because you're like, I'm going to cut around this. Because you can't. It's uh, there's so much other stuff to think about, but actors are so vulnerable. And the sooner you realize that, it, because it's their face on screen, it's not yours, it's not the gaffer, it's not the crew, it's not the lighting person, it's not yeah. anyone else but the actor. So if they're not comfortable, if they're not delivering, if it's not right, that's what everyone sees. No one cares if you went through the mud and you nearly died getting that shot. No one cares when they're watching the movie, they care about the performance of the actor and you're telling the story. So your most important thing is the actors. You can have a terrible shot. doesn't matter. The sound is really important, but the lighting doesn't matter as long... Well, it does, but as long as that performance is real. We've all watched shitty movies really badly made. Sure, But the performances sure. stand out. 
Yeah. And you, you forget that as directors. And, and something else you touched on there about making sure your first film is amazing and then the best it can be. Of course it should be the best it can be. But I feel like a lot of directors put so much pressure on that first movie being amazing that it can bog them down. Mm. Because I've done so many podcasts and talked to so many filmmakers now, including yourself, it, for me, from what I've learned, the first film is not as important as everyone makes out it is. The first hmm. film is the one you should just get done. Obviously, you're going to be brilliant and obviously you're going to do a great job and the best you can be. And you're probably going to nearly kill yourself doing it on that first one because I nearly did. But actually, it doesn't matter if it's not a number one box office hit. It doesn't matter if it doesn't go through the roof. It doesn't matter if just your nan sees it. It really doesn't. Obviously, it does. But my point is, is it's all about making another film and another film and your journey. And the more you make, the better you become. Great yeah, if it's yeah. a hit. Great. Wonderful. But if it's not, how many first-time filmmakers have had a hit movie? Out of, out of the millions who've made a first-time movie, you, you, you can hardly name any. You know what I mean? You're talking a handful of filmmakers out of that. So my thing would be don't put too much pressure on yourself or yourselves and make the movie that you want to make. And if that is 10 grand in the corner of your bedroom making it, so be it. Or if that's a 5 million movie in a studio, so be it. But don't worry if it's not a huge hit because your career will carry on if you're a good filmmaker. That's good advice. And it's it's I it's good to hear from you that because you have been working for quite some time at this point. And mm. um, it's something that I struggle with uh, myself because you obviously want to come out of the gate and do some really great stuff. But for me, at the at the end of it all, for me, it's like if it happens and when it happens. Um, mm -hmm. it's just, it's the ability to start, the, it's the ability to finally be doing it. It's yes. the ability to finally have this career doing this thing. And for me at, at the end of the, and I've said this on the show a hundred times, it's about living the life. It's about that lifestyle. It's about making sure that it's a career path. Like mm -hmm. this is a conversation I had with my manager yesterday or the other day rather. And, uh, we were talking and, and I was like, look, this is a starter movie. Like we're going to do it. We're going to do it awesome. And it's going to be fucking fantastic. But I want to make sure that this starts the career. I want to make sure that this goes on to the next. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've got what, like four movies in the bank right now, ready to go. So it's, let's just get it going. And let's, a big portion of it for us is let's try to work with the right people, work with the right connections that we're doing long, long-term fucking movies with. Yes. Um, it's important. You, you it's want tough. that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm lucky I'm in a position now where we're talking making a sequel to The Dare. We're talking making another movie there as well, which is great. It's so nice. Yeah. But again, that's not because The Dare's a massive success. It wasn't number one in the box office. It got really high. It's great. But it, it's not about that. It's about that movie made money. That movie made, it did well. The Dare made, you know, did all right. Thank you very much. And that's enough that's great. for yeah. us to go, well, we have an idea. Great. All right. Well, we can probably put the same amount in again because we made it already. Brilliant. We can already pre-sell because those now people who bought it the first time around are going, well, yeah, it did well. Thank you. And we did really well in a Dutch cinema uh, chain. We, we sold a lot. <laughs> a lot of people went to see the movie there. Um, so suddenly you're going back to those places again and saying, uh, great, do you want to do a sequel? And they go, yeah, OK, we'll put in this much. Great. Suddenly you piece it all together and you're making the sequel. Whether that's the journey you want to go on or not is irrelevant. Um, it's just, a, you're right, it's about the journey and making mm -hmm. the next film and thinking about that. And for you, it's, and for many of the filmmakers out there, is that big one you're trying to make, 
Maybe that's the second movie. Maybe it's the third. Because mm -hmm. if it's stalling, if there's problems, if there's that and the other, you know people. You know you could get a brilliant DP if you don't do it yourself. You know you can get some great actors. Um, you know you could shoot it in a, a barn. You can know you could find a story. So maybe that's, you go, do you know what? Straight after this lockdown, because I know the movie's not going to happen straight away on this one. It might be another six months. Why don't I just go shoot a movie for two weeks? You'll get yeah. everyone for free. I'll tell you that. And I'm not saying people should come for free. I'm saying because people want to work. And it, you're a great filmmaker. So people will go, do you know what? I'm going to do that. Because that's what stopped me for at least two years before I probably could have made a film. The rest of the time, I you know, maybe didn't know what I was doing and just fanning around and writing to people. Hey, anyone got three million type emails? Um, <laughs> which is now looking back to insane. People must have thought I was crazy. Uh, I probably was. But the two years before that, I... I went to see a, a really great filmmaker called Amit Gupta who'd made a load of really cool, cool studio movies. Mm -hmm. And I went to see his movie that he made for 100 grand. It's a really lovely romantic comedy. And I went, mate, this is a really great movie, but why have you gone from making, you know, decent-sized budget movies to this? And he went, because I could make a movie. He said, yeah. what's stopping you making a movie right now? And I went, well, money. He went, so go make a movie for 100 grand. Go make a movie for 20 grand. What are you waiting for? Because no one cares. And I literally went home that night and I found Johnny Grant's script, The Nobodies, that it had in a cupboard, you know what I mean, for ages. And I went, is it still available? But that kick-started me to go, I'm going to go make this for 100 grand. And that led into the dare to go, let's just go make this for 100 grand. Let's make a horror because the drama's too hard. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Sometimes filmmakers do think, oh, my film has to be this. It has to be that. It doesn't. It just has to be a film that sells. And these days you can sell a movie, and especially you knowing how to make a film. You'll be able to sell the movie. You don't need names. Go make a movie. Yeah. yeah. No, dude, it's good advice. It's great advice. <laughs> it's good. You could tell that you could you could tell that you're you're listening to two uh, filmmaker podcast hosts. <laughs> <laughs> sure, well, the thing is, when I started the filmmakers podcast, I had made the dare, but it wasn't out. And you've made loads of brilliant music videos and brand media and all that sort of stuff in shorts. But it's I, now I've, I'm like, oh, my God, why didn't I just go make a movie earlier? Um, and when we made Serial Killers, it was, just, it was just a great experience, which led on to then, you know, the studio signature going, hey, do you want to come and do uh, Arthur and Merlin Knights of Camelot? You know, mm. it's it just and now I'm getting other offers. Um, whether they come off it doesn't matter I'm getting offers people are like hey do you want to come do this do you want to come and do that but that's only because I've made films they've not seen the movies they haven't come out yet j j that's just so crazy I, that's what that's I'm trying crazy. to get into people's minds it, it's not about the film these people don't watch your movie I'd say obviously a lot of people do and when it's getting to the serious side of course they will but by then you will have won them over because you will have stepped in with an amazing pitch about how you're going to direct the next one yeah totally so it's people get held back and I'm, I get frustrated by it because I was held back. So I'm trying to tell filmmakers out there not to. And if, if this is in any way, uh, any advice is to just pick up a camera, have a story. There's plenty of screenwriters out there. Ra email one. Hey, what have you got? I want to make a contained horror. What have you got? I tell you what, you'll get about 50 and 10 of them will be great. Mm -hmm. You can go make mm -hmm. it now for now. Anyway, yeah. that's my Dude. rant. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a good rant man it's a really good rant yeah. uh, well let's let's pivot a bit yeah and let it sure. let everybody swallow that pill because that's a good <laughs> pill to swallow um so now so what was it like doing your second 
What was it like going into shooting your second film? It, well, I'd produced Serial Killers in between, so that I just I just produced that one. I jumped on and helped produce that one. So it was, again, a very different experience because when you're directing, it is very much about you. Like you say, you're the captain of the ship. You've got to control everything. You've got to know everything in your head. And then coming on to produce a movie, it wasn't long after either, um, was a very different experience because you now, you're not creative. You're literally working out where people are going to shit. You're working out where people are going to eat. You're working out mm. how the vans are going to go from there to there, which me and you used to do all the time and you probably still do and I do <laughs> on other <laughs> movies. You, you work all that because you're doing every job. When you make a studio movie, you don't do every job and it's weird at first because the amount of times I wanted to pick up the, um, the tripod or whatever and you'd have someone going over, uh, no, that's my job, don't take that away. <laughs> <laughs> but you want it because you know how little time you've got and you're going, ah, I need to get this shot. But you learn. You go, no, no, okay, respect them. They'll respect you and you work together. But going into direct, the second one was, um, it was brilliant because I'd learned not to panic. I'd learned that it would be okay. I'd learned what to go through in an edit. So I knew what shots worked and what didn't, what I wasted too much time on. Mm-hmm. And Arthur and Merlin was a really tough shoot because we were shooting in Wales and it did rain every single day. If it did get sunny for a bit, it rained later. So I got drenched every day. Even when we're inside, we're in an old castle in Caerphilly in Wales and it leaked. So when it rained, it leaked. So we had to literally be bailing out water under our feet. We got moved out of rooms. And the only time we didn't get wet was in the Great Hall and I had two days, I think, to get the big end fight and some really huge scenes with a load, a load of people around the table, you know, doing the big scenes and stuff. And it was an incredible shoot. It was mental. But I, I trusted in the process, you know, in love with the process. I trusted it and went, <laughs> I'm fine now. I've learned to relax, to go, I know I'm going to do this because I planned my shots. And again, preparation is so key. I just yeah. overprepared on the dare. But because I'd worked with actors and because I'd been an actor, I knew that I could improvise on the day. So as much as I knew exactly where the camera was going to be on the dare, and I'd planned it to an inch of its life, if an actor did something else, and I don't forget on the dare, people are, four people are chained to a corner of the room. There's only so much you can do. So I'd sure. already thought outside the box and where my cameras could go. Um, but even then, the actors will do something else. Or my DP would go, well, how about we go around here? Or I'll go, let's put this on the steady cam and let's do this, do it as a wanna. You know, you get excited and you suddenly make a better movie because of that. On Arthur and Merlin, Knights of Camelot, I was already there. I prepped so much, but I knew that I trusted in my actors and I trusted in my DP, because the same DP, Andrew Roger, who's fantastic. And my producers were fantastic and got me what I needed and when I wanted it. And uh, the only problem were, was the rain and horses and swords that won't do what you want them to do. <laughs> none of them, <laughs> none of those three things will do what you want them to do. But it's a gritty historical action. You know, it's Arthur coming back from Rome when he doesn't want to. He's an alcoholic. He's a womanizer. It's a very different Arthur. It's a different King Arthur to mm. most of these versions. And uh, I wanted it to look gritty and dirty. So the fact that it was raining every day as much as it was horrendous as you can imagine it just soaked through the nights are literally they're slipping all over the place you can't move you can't get up a hill to move the camera up there etc etc 
Um, But you know that you're going to make something good. You know that you're going to just trust in those shots. Even when I knew I had one take, because that's all we had left, or that's all we could find, that's all we could do. We've got one take on this, let's get it right. Putting someone in a freezing cold waterfall, the most, the coldest waterfall in Wales, I think in the UK, <laughs> and I made my two actors go underneath it. Uh, you know, get in, and you're going underneath. But you can, you, you can only push your actors so far. This is where sure. directors need to go. You need to plan that shit 100%, because if you're putting someone underwater, you think they're going to do that again for you, and perform, <laughs> and act I've been covered in blood and I've been in a freezing cold water and had to say lines. I know how difficult it is. So I just prepared it. We did all, we faked it. We cheated the shots so that we did anything where they were supposed to be in the water. I did them outside the water and just had the water in the background. We had them on their knees and did the shots like that. So we did any dialogue or looks that way. And then the Uh wider stuff or the moving around or the top shot, now you need to get in. But I tell you what, it works a dream. You do not know. You can't tell. Nice, but, but it was raining so hard that you couldn't hear anything. <laughs> you couldn't move the camera because you've got umbrellas over it. Because if that camera gets wet, you're done. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're in the woods. There's no spare camera, so you need to get it right when you turn over and you put get that camera out. So it was just a lot of preparation. And like I say, I had one take. There's one sword shot, and I just had one of it. And that's the main hero shot of the film. <laughs> You've got one take. That's it. And it was lucky to get that. It was a fluke that we got it, you know. Um, but I, I just, I learned so much. I learned to put my mind in the right place, not panic. I learned to be the, the first one out on set as soon as I got there. Here's what we're doing, kids. Talk everyone through the, the journey. And don't forget, I'm working with a lot of men. A lot of men with a lot of testosterone, you know, swinging swords, fighting each other. You've got to be in control of that. Yeah. And, you know, uh, these guys were brilliant, but egos can get in the way. It's like, I want that line. I want to be on front of camera now. It's my turn type thing. It, it can, you can see it in them. So you've just got to say you all get your moment and put your arm around each one of them separately and say, this is, don't worry, you'll get your moment then. Don't push in front here. This is it. This is what we're getting. Not that I needed to do that much, but you just had to be aware that sure. this is tough for them. They're in the rain. They're literally with a horse that doesn't, who's kicking off. No one wants yeah. to get on that when it's kicking <laughs> off in the rain. You're joking. Yeah, a few lads got, well, two lads got thrown off. One got kicked. Brilliant. Um, but they, they survived and they carried on and they loved it. And it's a brilliant, ex- they had an amazing experience, which surprised me. But they loved it. They all said they'd do it again in a heartbeat. And it, it was tough as hell. But I'm delighted. The film's, the film's in a very British way good uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm fa- i'm fascinated too so you were shooting you were talking about the rain did you have to adr most of this fucking movie because of that yeah a lot of it we had a brilliant sound guy but we had to adr a lot of the movie um, yeah and yeah. we kind of knew we were going to do that as we were shooting because when you've got someone on a horseback or in this case eight people on horseback or them near horses you can't get a boom anywhere near there you can't really mic them up because how are you going to, there's one sound guy as well, how are you going to control all that? So we kind of yeah. knew, so we often, as soon as we'd done a take, you get around in a huddle and say the lines as try and remember and do it exactly the same. And do you know what? Most of the time it fit and it, huh. it really does work. But I was surprised myself by how good the sound was um, because you were th- some of the actors were going, I'm not mic'd, how are you even picking up this dialogue? And you just would, you'd get it on the close-up or you'd get it and you'd just use that bit of dialogue. Because you haven't got time to be changing mics when you've got three of them and you've got eight people speaking. You've just, yeah. got, to, you've just got to get on with it and go, well, we'll work it out later. Um, and luckily we it's didn't a- have to do that much ADR, but yeah. 
it sounds like you were really sort of tackling a your time frame that you had to shoot this thing, but also b your budget that you were dealing with. with yes, as well. you yeah. do, and you just go, well, this is what we've got. We've got no. We shot with no lights. Um, I think there was one day where Andy had to bring. He had a couple in his car, and we were losing lights so fast in one of the great hall days. And I, like I said, I didn't. It, it was one of those days where I went, "Oh my god, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get all this shot?" It was just so much. And mm. um, yeah, we just we managed to put a big old wide on it and shot that way, and then suddenly pump, punch, pin, punch in, punch in, punch in, mm. and get your two shots. Get it, get the dialogue done. Get the most important bits, the close-ups. And if you miss a, you miss someone's reaction, yeah, it's not the end of the world because that's not the most important thing. Your story is story is more important. So get your shot list down which most important shot that you need when you're out mm -hmm. of time but yeah that was the day suddenly like we were losing light so we had our brilliant camera team which was two of them one of them ran to andy's car which was literally five minutes away because we're shooting in a castle brought a couple of lights and suddenly we we bunched up one of those shots in and again it's brilliant you'd never notice but the rest of the time it's just candlelight on natural light so you're again not fighting against that you're fighting against the sun so therefore mm -hmm. you can mm -hmm. you you've got much more freedom if we were setting up lights there was no chance we'd make it i also any any scenes that were at night I just moved them today unless they're around a fire, but that fire was still never powerful enough when we were there. That's something I learned. It's just not good enough. It's, you can't see faces. You can't see enough detail, especially yeah. if you, if there's two people around a fire, you can get away with it. If there's four or five, no chance. It's just, it, you just, you can't sustain a fire for that long either. Um, not no, totally. And when it's raining, <laughs> you just no, can't. Totally, man. I, I had a, I had a smaller version of that. I had a fireplace scene in uh, uh who's there the short that we did oh, that's and, great short. yeah and um we just recreated the um, unless you're shooting the fire that's the only time you ever see fire the rest of it mm. was all recreated because you yeah. can't control the fire and the, the fire you know <laughs> i remember there's a story about it i remember i uh, uh laughing when we found this location one of the agreement <laughs> one of the agreements that the person had for this amazing uh mansion that we were in she was like, you can use the fireplace. Just don't use don't just don't use my wood. She had like this big stack of wood <laughs> out back. And so I told the production designer, I'm like, we gotta bring, we gotta bring in our own wood. We gotta bring in our own stuff. And he's like, oh yeah, 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 fine. And so we're shooting, we're shooting it. And he has like a, a thing built. And I go, can we make the fire bigger? I think, you know, I was like big in a curacao. I'm like, big, big fire, big element. Sure. Yeah. Make it bigger. And he's like, all right, great, great. And so then he goes away, does his stuff, and I come back and look at the monitor and the fire is roaring. And I'm like, this is fantastic. Yeah. I was like, this is exactly what I'm looking for, this big fire. And so we have to shoot there for, you know, a few hours. Mm -hmm. And so we're consistently, he's always, uh, he was doing a killer job. His guys are off on the side and they're just tossing in logs. We need to have the logs tossed in. And so then afterwards, I, I'm like, where'd you get all this fucking wood? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. He's like, oh, there's a whole pile of it out back. I was like, God, you killed me. And so we ended up having to spend, spend hundreds on just replacing her wood and buying it from like grocery stores and opening up and out of plastic and putting it back on the pile. Oh, oh it was ridiculous. Re replacing the spiders that were there. And the yeah. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah, I got lucky on the dead because like I say, I was in a studio so i had a fire scene there outdoor in the snow which again i've got a story about snow which it wasn't supposed to snow obviously but it mm -hmm. did um but anyway i'll come might come back to that but we're shooting in the snow because i had to uh, continuity and i needed a fire scene 
these guys do a, they have a proper um i can't remember the name of it now la blazer no what's the word it's a pro, it, it it's like, like the pro, it's like a propane system right yeah and it's done about? on a, a gas and it's got a cable uh, you know yep. normal uh, and there it is and you say fire on and the fire goes on and you go thank you this is amazing there you've got this beautiful fire out in the forest that was great when you're shooting in the woods in wales and you're trying to get a bit of petrol from the car <laughs> it's a very different beast but it's doable you know we're filmmakers you have to think outside the box and you go well do you know if i'm not going to get that then tomorrow i'm going to redo it i'm going to pretend it's first thing in the morning now sunrise type thing i'll get mist on the ground let's put a smoke in and let's pretend it's you know first thing in the morning and or late at night whatever you you have to think like that and go well if i can't do this i'm going to have to shoot that way constantly yeah, cheating totally. constantly compromising your vision and your idea but do you know what you you can do it you, you are, i say this as filmmakers we start out like spielberg <laughs> and we go right i'm gonna do this it's gonna be a beautiful tracking shot through the woods all the horses galloping through it's gonna be amazing charging with their swords what you end up is just trotting <laughs> no swords because the horses don't like them <laughs> no tracking shot because the camera you know that we can't get through the woods it's not flat enough so you just go okay let's handheld this and let's just move along with them you know it's things like that that you just go well that's part of it that's part of indie filmmaking you know sure and, sure you know, and there's something there's there's magic in there there's a yeah, there's there a is. there's a level of magic because it sounds like you and i make movies very similar where mm. it's prep 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 and there have been multiple uh situations when i've done stuff where you know time everything just sort of is playing against you consistently at any time of the day when you're on a set there's a hundred reasons why you should stop and everything's yes. coming at you to stop and yes. so you're fighting that consistently and um, there's something really nice in knowing if you do it correctly, if you cast your crew the right way, mm-hmm. then you know that when shit hits the fan and if you're working with a really good AD and you're working with a really good cinematographer, you guys can huddle over in the corner and go, can we get the shot in two shots to save me room for this thing later? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can. Okay, let's yeah. do that. And does this make sense? And if you're really on your game and there, I can point out multiple occasions where it has made it better yes. because when you're planning these things, at least when I'm planning these things, I'm in a vacuum. I'm, yep. I'm literally sitting in my office yep. and I'm, I, I'm either staring at a blank piece of paper or I'm staring at my Cintiq and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. what is the coverage for the scene going to be? And let me start to draw this out. Let me try to board this thing out. And you're living in a fucking vacuum and you're like, yeah. okay, well, this is based on this and let me just sort of do this sort of thing. And it's good to have that because I always say that if you have storyboards, if you have a good plan, then if you guys all show up with a hangover that day, then you just go follow the fucking plan. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. you'll go through the plan and you'll get exactly what you need. But you also need to count on the fact that at some point in time on your days, the plan's going to get thrown out the window for good or bad reasons. Yes. And that should be part of your plan. I agree with you 100%. You should yeah. know in your prep that this might go all out the window. And what I love to do, and as much as I can do this, is once I've done all my prep, either the night before or at least a week before, if I can get into that location, 
I will then sit in there and then redo everything and go, right, okay, oh, look at the light coming through the window there. Oh, there isn't a window. Or Okay, so the door doesn't open that way, it opens this way. Ah, okay, so I've got to re-block all that. Once I'm sat in there, suddenly my mind comes alive with where the camera can go. You know, look at the floor, let's get a shot of the floor and we'll come up off someone's foot. But if you're not in there, you're doing all that in your room, like you say, and then you go there the next day and go, well, I'm going to do exactly as I've blocked out here. Well, that doesn't make you a good filmmaker. That makes you copying storyboards. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Well, anyone can do that. The DP can do that for you. You don't need to be there, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's about, for me, thinking like that. And it really is, the more you can get in the location, the more you can sit in it and just be there on your own, best as possible. Even if you're struggling, just sit there for a while. Suddenly you'll go, I got it. And you'll find mm-hmm. magic. They say magic happens when you least expect it in filmmaking. Oh, it's the best. It's the best. And when you, when you feel it, like you actually examine it and then you shoot that scene and you're like, I don't know where the fuck that came from, but that is amazing. It really is. is, That is, that is why we do it is for those, for those moments. There was a moment on the dare and I couldn't work out how to get from, kind of spoiler alert here, but it's not really, from my younger, uh, kid who was in the movie to my middle-aged kid, not middle-aged, he was teenager kid in the movie. And I was just going to do a match frame from his eyes to the other kid's eyes well they had mm-hmm. different color eyes and at the time i didn't know if i could cg those eyes and i didn't their faces weren't amazing when you did a match cut like that and i thought well i could do it on a you know somewhat hitting the floor or them fists going down then coming up and same jumper type thing it just was it wasn't feeling right it felt naff and i was just sat in the space because we'd built the studio we'd built sorry we built um uh, the house uh, in the mm-hmm. studio so i was just sitting in there and i just went oh <gasps> Something hit me and I went, I'm going to do this as a wonner. I'm going to have the kid. We see the kid and then we come over his shoulder and we're on the old man who sat there watching him and we pass around the old man in a one. And as we come back round his shoulder, he's now older. And during that time when we're coming up to the, to the, to the man's face, um, the lights are changing. You subtle, subtle as hell. And as you come back around, it's now dark and older, but you don't notice it. Your eyes don't really adjust. But now as you come back around, there's the older kid sat there. I'm doing it as a wonder. So what I did is I got them there at the same time. And I just said, just swap places, boys. The other kid, yeah. the, the younger kid had to follow us behind and sneak through so that he could make the shot work. But it's glorious. It's a brilliant. It's, you know, you just go, that was it. Done. Done. They're wearing the same jumper. People go, oh, oh, wow. That was cool. It's like a late, you know, one of those. You go, oh, nice. Oh, totally, man. Totally. Those moments. But you, just, just but you also, you also saved money on potential CGI. You yes. also saved money on all sorts of like edit issues that you're potentially going to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's the shit that a lot of people aren't really examining these days. We mentioned him before. That's Spielberg shit, man. That's that's going back to the days of camera movement that's meaning odd. something. Totally. You look at George. You look at those stuff he did in the the, the offices. You know, of his mm-hmm. office and stuff that were in the early scenes. It's just cool. It's pretty much one shot. He's yeah. just panning along someone in the typing room, his secretary, and then you go into the office and he just moves back around again. It's, he's done it in a couple of takes and it's yeah. magical filmmaking. So if you can steal from these guys yeah, totally. but make it your own, then, totally. Oh, totally. I mean, you know that's going in my showreel, my shot. You know, you know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's so simple. And when you come out of it, especially yeah. in a time period where everybody's like tech, 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 tech. And yes, Look at all, like I got a techno crane and all this other kind of mm-hmm. shit. And you're just like, no, dude, yeah. it's just about 
it's magic. It's like it's swapping magic. people out. Totally. Dim the lights up, dim and the lights I'm, down. Totally. And I got my DP to do it handheld as well. We didn't have a steady cam that day. And it was the only day I had the two kids at the same time. So I said to Andrew, I said, can you, do you reckon you can hold this and do it and go round? And he went, I'm going to give it a go. And I tell you what, you'd never tell. It's fantastic fantastic and then from that moment i said i'm gonna put it in two more places in the movie there's two more moments like this i'm gonna copy this but put my own style on my own style if you know what i mean and (laughs) suddenly i was i was thinking outside the box as a filmmaker and it felt alive i felt so alive in that moment it wasn't just a over the shoulder match cut or close up close up nah yeah and i tell you what the crew loved that shit yeah i I also got them to rebuild part of the set so i could remove it so that I could come round the camera so it made it look like we went through the wall. And by the time nice. we come back round to the face, the, the crew had slid the wall back in. And it was simply, it was a simple thing for them. But oh my God, they loved it. And I loved it. And everyone loved it because you've got this amazing, you went through the wall and you came back round and the wall's back in. What? Just little <laughs> things like that make filmmaking <laughs> special, you know? How, yeah. how many people notice it is irrelevant, but, you know, we would. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and dude, that's a big part. I mean... A lot of times when I'm pitching to producers, I'm like, I'm trying to do as much as I can practically. And mm-hmm. they're like, well, you can do a hundred different things in post now. And it's like, yeah, but it isn't yeah. just about that. It's about making sure that the experience of being on set is fun. Yes. And, and that's important in the long run because you're, you're, you're trying to do a marathon run through the amount of days and the amount of hours and all that stuff. And so mm-hmm. the more fun sequences that people can look forward to, the better I'm going to get out of the crew, the better I'm going to get out of the actors, totally. and the better I'm going to get out of my fucking self. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, w- I want to be impressed by this shit. I want to be on set and go like, <laughs> this is magical. Like, I want to feel those things. Yeah. So, so, so why not? Why not try it? Why not try and do them? There was, there, there was one moment where I had to do it on uh, King Arthur. And I had to, obviously, it was a scene where we couldn't have horses the whole time. It was dangerous. It was, they cost a lot as well. But I knew I hadn't got a close up of King Arthur, played by brilliantly by Richard Shaw, mm-hmm. on a close up on the horse. And I knew because I was editing as I went along and I went, I'd seen some of the rushes that they'd, they were putting together brilliantly. But I, I went, oh, I haven't got a close up. I said, Richard, I said, well, we're waiting for something to happen. I said, would you mind sitting on this tree? Andy, can you shoot low up at him? And I can. It'll, we'll, it'll look like he's on a horse can you just <laughs> can we do this and i bless him the other knights were around and obviously they're giggling because he's now on a tree he's literally mm-hmm. on a tree rocking backwards and forward pretending he's on a horse you know and looking around but in the movie it's incredible you just yeah. you yeah. don't know you'd yeah. never tell and that's what I advise all filmmakers is constantly be thinking, constantly be cheating. If you can get a shot here, if you can get a hand, my hand's in the movie. You'd never know it's my hand. I'm opening something, but it was better than trying to get the actor who's somewhere else or whatever. Oh, we're here now. I'll do it. I'll do it. I know how to do it. I'm watching the monitor and you get it. We all do this. It's, it's cheating stuff to make it work, make your film work, make it. So it makes sense. Tell the story. That's what's important dude we, you and i could talk about this for hours yeah. but we're, we're, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> we're actually hitting our point so <laughs> um so it, there's so many great things going on with you uh let's take a minute here what do you, what would you like to promote like what, what what should people look at first for your stuff um well i suppose arthur and merlin knights of camera is out july the 13th worldwide so please go support that uh, like i say it was it was a tough old shoot but i'm proud of it i'm proud of what we made for the money and i'm proud of the whole team honestly it was a real team effort so i'd say go watch that 
you know it's available july the 13th everywhere online so digitally and dvd so please watch that and the dare i'm i'm immensely proud of what i did for my debut movie and you know there is there's always going to be problems there's always going to be this that and the other some people love it some people don't do you know what that's what people are going to get through your movie oh and something else to be aware of as well is people are going to hate your shit there's always haters do you know what I mean and it's as an actor I hate I couldn't stand it I really struggled when someone put a bad review didn't matter how many great reviews they struggle as a director I'm all right with it because you watch my movie and you cared enough to write a review and I'm grateful for that because so many people have loved the dare and they've given me so much feedback the fact that we're making a sequel says it all really but you know the dare's out now certainly in America and Canada and uh, yeah again it's something that is there forever from some idea I had in a notepad in my office here, you know, mm -hmm. and now it's available around the world and we do midnight screenings and we won the audience award at various places. You go, oh my God, that's magic. Um, uh, so there's that. And then obviously the filmmakers podcast, if you haven't listened to that, I'd love you to listen. Um, and yeah, I've, there's a few other things coming up, but I can't say yet. I'm just hoping COVID goes away soon so that we can actually get back to making movies and what I love to do. Isn't it? Cra it's so crazy. Mm. That this one event, and this is what's been so nuts and about COVID, is that you're in London, mm -hmm. I'm here in Los Angeles, people listening are all over the place. Yep. We're all going through the same fucking thing. Same thing. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's nuts, dude. It's absolutely nuts. And yeah. we're all feeling that, that, that shit right now where it's like, get me the fuck out of here. Let's get back to work. Let's get into our stuff. You know, can we get through this? Mm. Um, it's, you know, hopefully... You guys are at home doing your research. Hopefully you guys at home are writing things. Hopefully you guys are getting ready. So yes. when the gates do open again, you can go running. Yep. Um, That's what I, I say now. It's, I say yeah. to you, Mike, it's get all that prepared. Get that. So it's, you could shoot tomorrow. So, yep. the, and send it to these producers now. Cause I tell you what, this is the time to get them to read. This is the time to be making yes. your script the best it can be. Send it to every friend you have, every actor you know. Send that script and go, would you mind? Tell you what, if they've got nothing better to do, they'll read it and sh their feedback will be invaluable. And why not do a table read? Plenty of actors now, we're doing them quite regularly at the moment, is that actors are very happy to come and do these Zoom table reads. Now you get to hear your script out loud, what works, what doesn't. And every single one of those actors will give a viewpoint on the part they played whether it's a tiny part of the postman or whatever it is because it means something to them and you forget about that as a writer or as a director how important it is those small parts and they'll just say mm -hmm. why does he say that why does he come from there and why does he not come back at this point you go oh my god thank you so i would say do everything you can now to make your project ready to go tomorrow every single thing you can do if you believe in yourself and as a filmmaker then why not even if that's you shooting in your shed Get ready to shoot tomorrow and go shoot a movie because there's nothing stopping you. Nothing. So that's today's episode. Another good uh, addition to our director's episodes. Um, uh, Giles is so giving with his information. I was literally taking notes with a lot of stuff that he was sending my way and your way. And uh, just hearing that, I'm always, fa oh, look, the truth of the matter is, is I'm always fascinated with this, how do you communicate with actors thing, right? <clears throat> and he's got some good advice. You know, go take a class, go take an acting class. I totally get it. 
And that's something if I have time to do, I probably will do. But in the meantime, let's talk specifics, right? And it sounds like without giving too much away, it sounds like he just has figured out a way to be as empathetic as possible to these humans, right? Let's break it down to the core. Understanding, taking a course enables you to understand what it's like and the amount of embarrassment that you're setting yourself up for, the amount of trust that you have in order to stand up in front of people and open your mouth and deliver somebody else's lines. Like that's huge. Like how do you convince somebody to make an ass out of themselves, right? Potentially make an ass out of themselves. How do you get a stranger, someone that you probably have only met, sometimes you meet that day, right? Before you start shooting, you meet extras and talent. So how do you convince that person to trust in you, especially when it's early on in your career and the work isn't out there? A lot of these actors have never seen your work before. A lot of these actors don't know who the fuck you are. So how do you convince these people to trust you? It's fascinating. A lot of his tips were very interesting. The fact that he has keywords that he liked when he was an actor. The fact that he understands how to translate what is wrong on the screen in such a way that inspires them emotionally to do it the correct way instead of doing what so many directors, so many young directors do, which is the worst thing to watch. Do it like this. If you have to say to your actor, do it like this, something's wrong. Because you acting something, if you act it out, then you should be in front of the camera, right? If you really know how to do it, then you get in front of the fucking camera and do it. You know what I mean? It's a fascinating thing. I'm still, I'm still working on it, you know, and everybody's different. There is no formula for this, but... I don't, from my perspective, like he gave a lot of really good advice from my perspective. I think it's just understanding people and it's understanding how your words affect people. It's understanding how your tone affects people. Like when you're a director and you walk onto a set, you need to know right away that everything you do is being watched for good or bad. Everything you do, every way you move, who you talk to first, where you go, it's all being watched. And it's being watched by your producers, it's being watched by your crew. You get on a large enough set and there are people that work for you who don't know you. And so when you walk into the room, they go the directors in the room. They don't know who you are. They won't say, hey, Mike's here. They'll go, oh my God, the director's in the space. And they're watching you. So just be cautious of that. Understand that what you project, the energy you put out there, how you act is positive or negative to those around. And I don't know, man, this is weird balance. I try to find this balance all the time because I want to be the chill guy that everybody likes to be able to approach and talk about stuff on set. That's always been my push has been I'm approachable, you can come chat with me, but at the same token, if you're too approachable and if you're too chill, then you lose control of your crew. You lose control of your set because then the chill stuff starts to happen. So it's this very strange, delicate balance. And I find myself consistently examining it 
on any on on both scales. So like if I'm dealing on a smaller scale with a crew of five people, I'm examining how that crew acts during the morning, how I get them inspired to get going, how long that takes. You start to see rhythms, by the way. How long that takes to get them going, and when they do get going, how long do you celebrate that you're going? And then when do you get the best stuff done during the day? And more often than not, to give you a glimpse, a gl glimpse to give you a glimpse at it, uh, I often find, like if we do an eight o'clock call, right, with our crew. Now I'm not even talking about talent. I'm just talking about crew. So you do an eight o'clock call. I find that we're not getting our shit together until about ten, at least on the first day. You're not getting your shit together about ten, ten thirty maybe. Right? If you guys have been at it for a little while, maybe 9.30. Okay? So you don't get your shit together till then. Your first shot, usually not really great. Second shot starts to feel like it. Third shot is great. Fourth shot, if you can get it in there, fantastic. Right? Then you're, you're on a high. Everybody's on that high, and then you're about to get into your fifth shot, and it's fucking lunchtime. So lunch comes in, stuff starts to shut down. Everybody sort of comes together and they talk and you walk around with them. If you like me, walk around and everybody's like, we're doing some really great stuff. Yes, we are. We're shooting some really great stuff and everybody gets comfortable. This is an awesome experience. It is it's a fantastic experience. You eat that food and then you come out of it. So a lot of people are excited to come out. Sometimes on my cruise, I've had people come out early to get started again. But then they come out and you try to find that thing that you left prior to lunch and it's a struggle. You now have the itis, right? You know, so then you're sending someone out, grab fucking coffees, go get coffees, go get anything, give them a, a jolt of this. And it takes you another hour to get cranking back up to speed again, in which you'll get two or three good setups or shots, depending upon the scale of what you're doing, before everybody shuts down and gets, gets delirious. It's fascinating. And that's just from the crew side. So how you understand that uh, understanding how people work in that environment is very important so then you have to do the same thing with actors and talent and you're dealing with people that are essentially carrying the film visually carrying the film as far as like their fucking face is the face of the movie and they're sitting and waiting for most of the time not to mention the fact that you're most likely shooting out a sequence right Let's shoot everything on this lighting and then we'll swap sides and shoot everything on that side. <laughs> Can you imagine how insanely confusing that could be for somebody, especially a new actor, somebody who's like trying to keep in their head where their talent is emotionally down to the second. And so then they're sitting here going, great. Uh, what are we doing? Okay, so we're swapping sides. Okay, so we're gonna do that and then what did I do two days ago for the other coverage for that? And how did that work? And where was I in that space? And how do I bring myself back into that space where I was a couple days ago? And who's keeping track of, was, was, I, was I carrying the cup in my left hand or my right hand? And how fast did I run into the room there? And is my energy level up right? Who do they turn to for this? Now, sure, you have people that you turn to. You'll have your script supervisor, continuity people your cinematographer, those folks that have been keeping track of all these things with you, but they turn to you and they trust you as the director to make sure 
that they're not going to look stupid in the edit. Let's just break it down to its core element here. Let's break past all the fluff and all that promotional fluff. At the end of the day, these people, if they trust you enough, are willing to get on screen, sometimes get naked for you on screen, because they trust that you're not going to make them look like an asshole in the edit room. Remember that. So how do you get them to trust you? Especially people who haven't seen your shit before. That's something to think about. So process that. And I know that there are many of you out there that are like, I don't understand how to make this work unless I'm doing it. Look, this is one of the reasons why I like to cook meals for people. This is one of the reasons why I like to put on parties. Or I like to do barbecues and stuff like that. Because you're literally using those same skills. Right? You're interacting with strangers. You're getting people to trust you. You're getting people to trust your food. You're getting people to trust the experience. You're getting them to open up. Put yourself around other people. (laughs) COVID time. Put yourself around other people. And listen to how they react to somebody else's tone. Examine how a frustrated person can change an entire room. Examine how someone that has anxiety and doubt in what it is that they're cooking can change the way the meal tastes for you. I don't know. A lot of things to think about. Great episode today. Very happy we had it. Can't say enough good things about our guest today. I can't say enough good things about Liam for kicking ass on this show. Always Code Electro kicking ass on this show and I love you guys. So you know the deal. We'll be back next Tuesday. So I'll see you then.